Father, we come as your children, and we are more hungry than many of us admit. We need a touch from heaven. We need to be reminded of these things, as Peter told us, very often. And we admit, Lord, there are many things that we neglect or we forget or we have set aside. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit might be gracious to us and remind us of what is needful. Lord, it's just great to be here in fellowship with one another. It's, it's great to be with friends and a spiritual family. The fellowship is wonderful. The singing is outstanding. But Lord, you know our future so intricately that you know there are lessons that will be valuable to us because of what we will go through in our futures. You know them so well, and we don't. And so, Father, we pray that you might break through the soil of our hearts tonight, that we would grasp those lessons for the future, so that as we go through them, we might pull up the lessons that you've taught us, be reminded, and put into practice, then, the things that we learn. Help us to be mature, to grow up in all things in Christ, growing in the grace and knowledge of our God and Savior. Help us, Lord, to not be weary in well-doing, to be weary of Bible study. Help us, Lord, that we would study to show ourselves approved, and that it would be a manner of life with us, a habitual calling to study that we might be used by you. Lord, help us to peace all that we have learned in the past concerning this book and the story of Jesus. And thanks again for this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. I think the story is the Barretts of Wimpole Street. And in the story, now, I think, I don't have it in front of me, but I think the characters are Robert and Elizabeth. Robert was a strong husband, the kind of guy that Elizabeth could always depend upon. Strong character, strong in counsel. Elizabeth was feeling particularly weak, vulnerable, emotional, going through a tough time in her life. And at one particular scene, in the Barretts of Wimpole, Elizabeth said, Oh, Robert, how can you love me when I am so weak? And he said, Elizabeth, my strength needs your weakness. As much as your weakness needs my strength. When you have that combination of someone who is weak and someone who is strong, there is the uplifting of the condition. What a perfect condition, then, to have Jesus Christ, the master of all situations, face to face with human frailty, disease, weakness. Think how the disciples marveled at Jesus. You know, something came up, and they thought, what, what's he going to do with this one? How's he going to handle this one? And then to watch how he handled it and to think he's a master at every situation. That's why 
They were thrown back when Jesus said, It is to your advantage that I leave you. What? It's to our advantage that you leave us? How could that work? Uh, you're the greatest thing we've ever experienced. You are our advantage. You with us. We don't want anything else. No, no, it's to your advantage that I leave. Because if, if I don't leave, then I can't send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will come and abide with you forever. Now, they didn't grasp that. They're still in training. But that's a beautiful promise for us, for just as Jesus was present with the disciples, the Holy Spirit, as well as Jesus, is present with us. Wherever two or three gather, besides that, he promised to never, ever leave you or forsake you. Now, we have a great story in front of us in chapters 7 and 8 of the works of Jesus. Chapter 6, we've seen the words of Jesus. Now we get the works of Jesus. As Jesus proves that he is the Messiah. Now Luke, I believe, has a theme that he's running against. He's showing to the Greek mind how that Jesus is the authentic one sent from the Father. And so he shows the Sermon on the Mount in one chapter, followed by the compassion of Jesus. Jesus restless in the presence of human suffering in the next chapter. His words spoken, his works demonstrated. His words and his works go together. And of course, Jesus said that to his disciples. He said, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I speak, they are not of myself, but of the Father which sent me. And if you don't believe the words that I speak, believe me for the very works sake, the sake of what I do, because he spoke and then he demonstrated who he was. The works and the words of Jesus, what he did, he did as the unique Son of God. Though he gave his disciples power to perform certain miraculous deeds, don't get in your mind that you and I are to replicate the very works of Jesus. Don't fall into the trap that for years John Wimber fell into in the vineyard, saying that all that Jesus did, he did as a spirit-filled man. The works that Jesus did, he did because he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and in the exact same way, you being filled with the Spirit are to do exactly what Jesus did as a spirit-filled man or woman. Well, certain things he did give authority to his church to perform. But by and large, what Jesus said and did were to authenticate that he was the theanthropic, that's the big word, son of God. God-man, God in human flesh. To fulfill Isaiah 29, Isaiah 35, what he would say and what he would do. And so Luke is pulling that and demonstrating that uh, before his audience. Um... We saw last week in chapter 7, the first part uh, where Jesus heals the servant of the Roman centurion, followed by the son of the widow of Nain, and we see the compassion of Jesus. We see that throughout, I think, the entire chapter, and now he deals with a wandering prophet named John the Baptist. Jesus Christ 
is very compassionate. We are weak. He is strong. We need his strength. And he doesn't mind your weakness. He doesn't look at you and go, you know, I'm so ashamed of you. You're so weak. You ought to be strong. You ought to stand up for yourself. When you say, Lord, I feel so weak, do you think that bugs him when you come to him for strength? Especially in the Old Testament when God said, he knows our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. That's what you are, dust. How much can you expect out of dirt? The best that you can expect out of dirt is when you mix it with water for it to just be supple, as in the hands of a potter, that he might mold it and shape it. It's his strength. It's his plan. Submit to him. He is your strength. So often we read in the Gospels that Jesus was compassionate with people. I think the first time it is mentioned is in Matthew's Gospel when Jesus in Galilee overlooks the crowd and he sees that they are like sheep that are scattered having no shepherd. And the scripture says Jesus had compassion on them. And then he turned to his disciples and he said it, I have compassion on them. The word that is used is a very telling and a deep word in the Greek language. It's splankna, which literally means intestines. That's what compassion originally means, guts, viscera. It speaks of the abdominal organs. And the Greeks used that word because of their belief that the deepest emotions experienced by an individual were not in the mind, in the head, but in the emotions, in the emotions in the uh, stomach regions. Just like if you've ever had to be a speaker somewhere and you don't like to be a public speaker, and somebody says, come on up and give your testimony, share a few words. And you stand, you get butterflies, you feel it right here. Or when you hear that somebody you loved has died, and you're bent over sometimes with grief, you feel it inside, you feel it in the guts. And so when it says Jesus had compassion, it means that he felt in the deepest emotional part of him, that feeling toward others. That's the high priest we serve. And so the writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Okay, enough introduction, let's get into it. Then all the disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, reported to him concerning all of these things. That is, John is in prison. He's down by the Dead Sea on the east side of the southern portion of the Dead Sea, out in the middle of the desert. Gets to about 130 degrees in the summer, 135. Sometimes it's been recorded. 120 is an average. He's in prison in Machaira, prison built by Herod the Great. So he can't hear and see what's going on with Jesus. But the disciples of John can go and give him information. And so they reported to him concerning all the things, that is, the works of Jesus. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? 
John the Baptist was experiencing a little bit of doubt. After all, he had predicted the kingdom of God and the coming king. He was the forerunner. He predicted the judgment that Jesus would show upon the earth. The mighty works that he would do. This is the coming one. He'll baptize with fire. He was an activist. He expected the kingdom of God to be demonstrated visibly immediately. He thought the fireworks were going to start. Jesus is going to bulldoze his way through uh, the Roman ranks, take over, and get on with it. Now he's hearing reports. Great messages he's been given. Uh, great works he's been doing. But now what? Is this the one that I spoke about, or is there someone else who's the Messiah? He's experiencing a little bit of doubt. It is not uncommon, by the way, for even very spiritual people and spiritual leaders to have great times of doubt and frustration. As I read the biographies of great men, like Charles Spurgeon, or just take the Bible, Moses, times of great faith, times of great doubt. I mean, even when God picked the guy, he had excuses. Moses, I want you to lead my people. Oh, who am I? It's not who you are. It's who I am. Don't worry about it. I'll put my words in your mouth. Well, what am I going to say? Don't worry about it, Moses. I'll be with your mouth. Well, who shall I say sent me? I am that I am sent you. But I'm not eloquent. And finally he said, send somebody else. If I were God at that point, I would have said, fine. I know just the guy. <laughs> Somebody who's willing, not you. And there were times later on when he was doubtful. What about Elijah? Able to stand up for God on Mount Carmel and call fire down from heaven, only to have him in the subsequent chapter, 1 Kings chapter 19, to be just totally depressed. When he hears that Queen Jezebel wants to kill him. Now, why would that threaten him? He stood against hundreds of prophets and prophetesses in the name of God and watched fire come down out of heaven and wipe them out. And he was aggressive. And then he hears, Jezebel is after your hide. And she swears that if by sundown tomorrow you're not dead, you know, she's going to, she'll, she'll herself be dead. So she's put out a note. There's a note money on your head. He gets up and runs all the way down to Horeb, to Mount Sinai. And he starts just sulking. And God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? He goes, I'm the only one left who's faithful to God. My life is no better. God, just kill me. Let me die. God came to him again. Elijah, what are you doing here? He was so depressed and so doubtful. It seems like he's, you know, not the same person that we read about in the previous chapter. Jeremiah, very, very bold, yet very, very persecuted. Toward the latter portion of his ministry, he is taken to the house of Malchiah, the son of the king, lowered down by ropes through the dungeon, and he sinks in the mire. So there's a guy in a long hole in ropes, just sinking in the mire, deeper and deeper and deeper. Gets to the point where he says, God, I'm not going to even speak in your name anymore. I don't want the job. I quit. 
John the Baptist, so fired up. And then he goes, go ask that Jesus guy if he's really the guy. Or if we should look for another. I'm tired of waiting. Now, people like John the Baptist, the activist type, are not very patient in spiritual matters. They are the kind who love to see God act immediately. They like a little judgment happening. Like to see a little fire come down from heaven and smoke these guys. Jesus came primarily to save the world, though he was the Messiah. What John thought would happen immediately hasn't even happened yet. And won't happen until Jesus comes back the second time. When he returns the second time, he will come as the reigning king and the Lord and judge. But he came to save people from sin. Okay, Jesus answers the disciples of John, not with a long theological lecture, but with a demonstration, basically. At that very hour, he cured many people of their infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many who were blind, he gave sight. And Jesus answered and said to them, Now go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Should that ring a bell? Sure it should. Isaiah 41, Jeremiah 29, Isaiah 35, all predicting this exact thing, this, these deeds that Jesus said he came to perform. In John the Baptist's mind, it would have rung a bell. Go tell him that I'm fulfilling these things. And then he says, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. Now, I love John the Baptist. I really love the guy. I love the guy because he was gutsy. He spoke his mind. But I also know that there are people like John the Baptist, the activist type, who don't like to wait for things to happen. And they're the kind who love to write the articles against the church. It's the church's fault that everything is happening in the world. And if the church would just get together and change things and move and push so-and-so out and bring so-and-so in, forgetting that the kingdom of God cometh not by outward observation, as Jesus said. The kingdom of God, Jesus' method is to change the inside of a person first through the preaching of the gospel. Not just change outward society. Without the preaching of the gospel and a change of heart, there's not a prayer. That's why you want to be an activist? Be a radical evangelist. Tell people about Jesus Christ. Seek to win their heart. When you won their heart to Jesus... Then that life begins to change. And that's how society has changed. Through the gospel. And that's our primary focus. That's why he says, And the poor of the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The Greek word scandalon. Scandelesthai. To stumble. To stumble because the expectations that you have are not being met. Do you know anybody who stumbled? They approach the Christian life. They pray that great prayer of salvation. They shed those tears. They come forward to get a Bible. They're all excited. And for some reason, there's in their mind, they expect that life is just going to flow like dominoes now. 
There's going to be one grand miracle after another grand miracle every single day of their life. And when it doesn't happen, they want to take their football and go home. Have you received Christ as your Savior? Have you made him the Lord of your life? Then he's in charge. If he's in charge of your life and you commit your way and your day to the Lord, then what must it sound like to God when we complain about what he has chosen for our life or allowed us to undergo? Blessed is he, happy is he, who is not offended because of me. When the messenger of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live luxuriously in king's court, uh, and live in luxury are in king's courts. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is of he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Now, a reed shaken by the wind, those are the reeds down by the Jordan River. When a wind comes, they start bowing. Whichever way the wind blows, they bow. He's speaking about a spineless leader. And let, me, let me kind of paraphrase this. When you, John was in the desert, what did you think? You're going to go see a sissy? A wimp? Somebody who bowed to the whims of what the people wanted? Or a prophet? He wasn't a compromiser. He wasn't a puppet. He was a prophet. And more than a prophet, he was the forerunner. He was the guy that Malachi predicted would come before the Messiah. That is he. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now that's an amazing statement. That is a, that's like the ultimate compliment to have Jesus Christ say of you, there hasn't been anyone born of woman greater as a prophet than this guy. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now think about greatness for a minute. That's quite a statement when you think of all the great people who've ever lived. There's been great politicians, great musicians, great athletes, great people who've used their great wealth for great things. John the Baptist didn't write a book. He didn't even own a business. He didn't even work for somebody else. He didn't have a large wardrobe, ate bugs. So if you measure John by the standard of this world in terms of greatness, there's no greatness at all. For that matter, Jesus wasn't great according to this world's standards. But John the Baptist even less. Jesus says he's greater than all the prophets. Think of all the prophets in the Old Testament. Moses was considered a prophet. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Think of all the great men who've ever lived. Alexander the Great, Herod the Great, Charlemagne, Napoleon. John the Baptist is greater. Now, Jesus doesn't mean he's better. And it's not greater in position as it is greater in character. 
There are several notable things about John the Baptist that can't be said of any other human being who's ever lived. Number one, he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth. Remember when Mary went to visit Elizabeth and gave her the greeting, and the babe leapt being filled with the Holy Spirit in Elizabeth's womb. John the Baptist always pointed the way to Jesus Christ, and he did it with great humility. He said, I'm not the guy. Don't look to me. This is the guy you've got to follow. He's the Lamb of God. I'm not even worthy to bend down and tie his shoes. He was the last prophet of the Old Testament. He was predicted in Malachi. There's 400 silent years. John the Baptist comes on the scene. He is the last prophet, according to Jesus, of the Old Testament. And he's the only prophet who formed the bridge and segued from old to new, pointing the way to the Messiah, introducing the Messiah, and living for a period of time after Jesus came on the scene. He's the greatest prophet who's ever lived. No other prophet was able to see that. But whoever's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now that's an odd statement. And one of the scriptures I would use to unlock the meaning of that is in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. It lists all of the characters of faith in the Old Testament and says they all died in faith, not having received the promise, God having reserved some better thing for us, that they, without us, would not be made perfect. In other words, we who live in the New Testament live under the authority of the kingdom of God. We're not predicting that it would come like the prophets did. Jesus has come. He is our Lord. He has died for the sins of the world. The kingdom of God has been ushered in by Jesus. And the least in the kingdom is greater than all of the Old Testament prophets and even John the Baptist, who's the greatest, showing that there is quite a difference between living in the Old Testament versus living in the New Testament. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now, I should, and I stop, but 29 and 30 form a contrast. Luke is showing how two different groups of people listened. And how two different groups of people responded. And I think you could probably put everybody in one of these two categories. When all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. One group listened and repented. The other group hardened their hearts and rejected. God loved them and tried to break through to their hearts, but they didn't want anything to do with it. And I think that Luke is demonstrating here what Jesus said in the previous chapter, the end of it, when he talked about two people who build. And one builds his house on the sand, the other builds his house on a rock foundation. Jesus said, whoever listens to me but doesn't do what I say is like the man who builds his house on the sand. The one who listens and obeys is the guy who builds his house on a solid bedrock foundation. And that building will go on and last. And so the groups who listened to John the Baptist, some tax collectors, scoundrels, believed were baptized. Others rejected the counsel of God for their lives, not having been baptized by him. 
And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. The leaders of Jesus' day, instead of being childlike, which is a good attribute, Jesus said that we should be like children in our faith, just trusting like a child. Instead of being childlike and innocent in faith, these leaders, and he's speaking backhandedly, I think, mostly of the Pharisees, were childish. They were like little kids, precarious little children. They didn't like how John the Baptist ministered. He was too harsh. He was too stern. Too radical for them. He didn't dance according to their tune. They had to go to him. He didn't even come to Jerusalem. They had to go find him out in the middle of the desert. They rejected him. They didn't like Jesus either. He was too forgiving and loving and extended forgiveness of sins to almost everybody he met that he could who turned to him. And they said, who is this who forgives sins also? So they didn't like the ministry of John the Baptist. He's too harsh and stern. They didn't like the ministry of Jesus because he was too gracious, like a libertine to them. You can't win with people like that. It's like the kids who say, let's play funeral. No, it's too sad. Okay, let's play wedding. No, it's, it's too joyful. Jesus is saying, because we don't dance to your little tune, you're like children in the marketplace. Nothing will please you. People who want to reject truth will hide behind a careful maze and mask of criticism. They'll try five, ten different churches. They don't like any of them. None of them are good enough for them. Oh, I don't like that preacher. He yells too much. He's so loud. He walks back and forth and pounds his fist. Well, you might not like him. I don't like that other guy. He's too intellectual and just... Or the other, he uses too many illustrations. Well, I don't think he used enough illustrations. They're to this over there. They're to that over there. When you don't want truth, everybody is not good enough. That's being childish. That's what I love about John the Baptist and Jesus. They didn't care about the whims of the crowd. They were not like reeds bent over with the whims and the winds of the people. They were strong leaders. We played the flute for you. You did not dance. We mourned to you. You did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by all of her children. God's wisdom is shown in the lives that he changes. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him 
And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. This is a notable occasion when Jesus eats dinner with somebody. And it, to me, is always neat. It's, it's great. I love seeing Jesus eating with someone, sharing fellowship with them. This guy was a Pharisee. And what's ironic is Jesus just denounced the Pharisees. And one of them invites Jesus to dinner. This guy was probably a little bit different, a little more friendly. Uh, perhaps he admired Jesus. Perhaps he thought, you know, I'm going to get a feather in my cap. I'm having this guy over to, to my house for dinner. They sat down to eat. Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. That means it was the most expensive perfume in the most elegant case possible at that time and stood at his feet behind him weeping. In those days, it really was an interesting setup the way the neighborhoods worked. If you invite somebody to your house for dinner, your neighbors had every right to come in uninvited. Now, they couldn't eat, they couldn't participate, they couldn't speak. But they were allowed to come in the courtyard, generally, where the meal like this was given out. And they would stand against the walls, or they would be on their haunches. They'd sit down, they'd just listen. Especially if a famous rabbi's in town. They could just come in and say, you might be eating. And people just come through the door, hey, how you doing? Don't mind me. <laughs> they'd just drop in unannounced. This woman was there among the crowd at this dinner party behind Jesus. Now, it says they sat for dinner. It should be they reclined because they didn't sit in chairs like this or like you have. They didn't sit at a dinner table with a fork and a knife and a napkin and a little glass of water with a lemon in it. They reclined. They either had couches called a triclinium, a Roman triclinium, where people could eat in leisure. And uh, if you ever go with us to Jerusalem, I'm going to try to take you to uh, a restaurant in Jerusalem where they have reconstructed a Roman meal from 2,000 years ago. The same foods the same kind of earthenware and the same triclinium where you can sit around and have a leisurely meal. The same kind of musical instruments that they would have played. And so you were either on a triclinium or you laid your elbow on a pillow and you'd hang out. It's a great way to eat. You know, we get so formal and stuffy. And uh, sit up and put your left hand on your lap and right hand up here and no elbows on the table and you know back then it's just like hey lay down when you eat <laughs> my kind of folks and so the crowd's there the woman's behind Jesus he sat down for dinner he's, he's reclining she stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself. You know what that means? It's in his mind. He's not speaking it out loud. It's, he's thinking it. Saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. There's three people in this story that we should notice. A Pharisee, 
a crying woman, and Jesus. All three of them play their part. The Pharisee, as you know, was religious. The most religious of his day. The kind who could spot a sinner. The kind who classified sinners according to their reputation and their deeds. We're fond of classifying sins. That is a mortal sin, which is different from this over here, which is a venial sin. I might be a venial sinner, but now there's a mortal sinner. Means I'm a better sinner, a nicer sinner than that sinner. Okay, I'm bad, but that guy's really a wretch. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, who saved a wretch like you. We're fond of classifying what sin is. Sin is sin to God. If you have transgressed any part of the commandments of the law, you've broken all of them, Jesus said and Paul reiterated in Galatians. The Pharisee knew the reputation of this woman. His problem? He didn't know her heart. The Pharisee also knew his reputation. His problem? He didn't even know his own heart. Jesus knew both. He said, she's a sinner. Jesus said, in effect, you're both sinners. Two sinners and a savior. One who knew she was, one who knew he didn't know he was. Jesus knew they both were. And he deals with both of them accordingly. By the way, to get the understanding of the story, there's an element that's missing. For some reason, the Pharisee did not extend the common courtesy. Let's say somebody knocks at your door. It's wintertime. They have a coat on. You open the door and you say, it's good to see you. Please come in. They come in. And usually, if you're any kind of a host, you'll say, can I take your coat? Then you'll say, can I get you something to drink? Dinner will be served and so on. And, you know, it's, there's a protocol. There was protocol in their day as well. The first thing that you were to do when a guest entered your house is to place your arms on the shoulders of the guest so that you have eye contact. This human camaraderie, you grab them, and then you give them a kiss on the cheek. Common greeting. It's like saying, hi. The second thing you were to do is to have a bowl of fresh water by the door so that either you or a servant, usually a servant, would wash the feet of the person coming in. Why? Because there were pay, no paved roads, no cars with air conditioning, but the dust clung to the feet of those who would walk throughout the land in those days. And then, awfully refreshing to have your feet washed before supper. Because if you're leaning down and your feet are right by the table, <laughs> you and everybody else there wants your feet washed. The third thing that was very customary to do is to have oil available to anoint the guest. The anointing was because the Middle East, like this part of the country in Albuquerque, is very dry. And you're probably used to getting up and in the morning and the afternoon putting lotion on, especially if you were from another part of the country where it's moist and you come here and you go, man, it's so dry here. My lips are cracked and, you know, it's just my skin is flaky and you put ointment on. The oil was to anoint, to, to refresh the person and uh, smooth out the skin. None of those courtesies were extended to Jesus. 
for whatever reason. I don't think he forgot. It was probably because he thought, you know, we don't know really about Jesus. We don't know if, you know, he's really one of us or what. He's denounced us several times and didn't extend the courtesy. Here she is crying. It means to audibly weep. It's not a sniffle. She interrupted the party. Everybody could hear carrying a... Tears are falling on Jesus' feet. Wipes them with the hair of her head. Now, this looked out of protocol, out of context. And so the Pharisee thinks, you know, this is very revealing. Because if this guy really were an important man of God, if he was a prophet, he'd be able to, he'd know, he'd have the instinct, the spiritual perception. He'd be able to read her heart. Read her mind. He would know this gal's a sinner. Now, she probably was a notorious sinner. Uh, that's the reputation she comes to us with in the text. She was probably a harlot because her hair was unbound. We know this. She was not married. It was unlawful for Jewish women. And a Jewish woman could be divorced if she went in public with unbound hair. It was usually the prostitutes that dressed like this and wore their hair like this. But anyway, she had a reputation of being some kind of a sinner, and that was the general classification for a woman, an immoral woman, this sinner. If you were a prophet, you would know what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, teacher, say it. Now, we're going to see that Jesus demonstrates his ability to read hearts and minds. His. He already knew about her. He didn't know, Simon the Pharisee didn't know that Jesus could read his own mind, that he was thinking this. Playing off of his thoughts, he gives this parable. There was a certain creditor, now listen, who had two debtors. He's going to draw the parallel between this woman and the Pharisee. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom you forgave more. Jesus said to him, Right on. You have rightly judged. He turned to the woman and said to Simon, Now, look at, notice that. He turned to the woman... And as he looked at her, perhaps gave eye contact to Simon or just spoke to Simon these words, Do you see this woman? Of course he saw this woman. Oh, he saw this woman. He had judged this woman. This sinner, my house, crying, <laughs> carrying on, emotional woman, an emotional sinner. <laughs> Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
And those who sat at the table with them began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The secret of serving is love. If you do not love, you will not be a good servant. The secret of serving is love. The secret of serving and not growing weary in it is doing it out of love. Case in point, the church of Ephesus. Boy, they were busy, weren't they? They probably had more stuff in their bulletin than we have in our bulletin. Jesus commended them for their hard work, their labor, their doctrine. But I have something against you. You have left your first love. Repent, therefore, and do your first works again. They were busy for the sake, perhaps, of being busy or out of duty, but the motivation of love for Christ wasn't there. The key to service is love, which means get a person in love with Jesus and that person will be a servant of Jesus. Try to motivate that person through any other way, through carnal motivation. They're not going to last long. I get weary of some people who say, you know, you ought to really get some of these people who are just sitting around in the church doing nothing. You ought to get them out there. Tell them, you know, push them. Get them to serve in this ministry and that ministry. Why? God needs to do it, and they need to do it because they love Jesus Christ. The reason many don't is they just don't love Jesus Christ. If you love me, Jesus said, you'll keep my commandments. You don't have to prod somebody and just, okay, serve God, buddy. <laughs> you don't have to force somebody who loves Jesus to serve him. I gladly do it. That's why I'm sick of hearing carnal motivations. Now, you bring a friend to church next week, there's a special reward for you. You witness to four people this week and have them sign their name on this piece of paper, you'll get a prize. Hey, get them in love with Jesus. How do you do that? Teach them about Jesus. Uh, get out of the way and let them see in the scriptures who this Jesus really is. To know him is to love him. Spontaneously, she came in. Nobody had to say, you know, listen, what you ought to do is get that, that real nice ointment you got up there. And I suggest you go to G, that house tonight. And if you really love G, she, she did it. She wasn't prompted by anything but her own heart. That need that she had, that love for Jesus Christ because of her sins, she knew she was a sinner and she sought forgiveness. That's the true test of spirituality, by the way. We have so many little things in our minds that we think a spiritual person really is. They're spiritual by what they do. Now, you want to be spiritual, you should memorize a verse of Scripture every day. Read ten chapters a day. Witness to one person a week. And meet in an accountability group once a week. Then you're really spiritual. Hey, those things are great. But if you try to use those as a measure of spirituality, you're out of whack. It's by your love for Jesus Christ. Yes, your love for Jesus Christ will be demonstrated in a number of ways, but it doesn't have to be mechanical. This was spontaneous and from the heart. Another lesson this teaches us is that all of us are debtors. All of us are sinners. Some of you are better sinners than others. 
But your response to you being a sinner can either be pride or penitence. Pride or penitence. His was pride, hers was penitence. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. By the way, love finds ways to serve. Finds ways. And that's what so much I love about you and this fellowship. How you just rise to the task. You see something that needs to be done, you think, okay, you know, I feel like I'm gifted in that. I'm just going to go, go for it, get involved in it, and minister to that person that need. You just sense God's prompting on your heart. Love finds ways to serve. It's interesting. Some people will only serve, and they're always faithful, as long as they have a paid staff position. They don't have a paid staff position. I'll find someone else who will put me in a paid staff position. I don't want to serve. I want a job. Well, then we don't need you. For the ones that we usually put upon our staff are those who they're just available. They're at the services. They're seeing things that need to get done. They're just naturally serving. And we watch what God is doing in their life, how their love for God is prompting them to serve without any kind of cajoling or pushing. And they're like naturals. And that doesn't mean, okay, well, good, I'll get involved and I'll get a paid staff position. There's a lot of people who don't, who do continually serve just because they love Jesus. That's their reward. Serving Him is their reward. And the reward's in heaven. Your faith is saved. You go in peace. Now it came to pass. Afterward, he went through every city and village. This is in Galilee now. Preaching and bringing the glad tidings or the gospel. Euangelion. The kingdom of God. And there were twelve with them. And a certain woman who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod Stuart, and Susanna, whom they named the song, Oh Susanna. No, I'm just kidding. Of course, we don't know really anything about Susanna <laughs> other than she appears here in the scripture and many others who provided for him of their substance. And when a great multitude had gathered and others had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. Now, Jesus is speaking about his favorite subject, the kingdom of God. I say that's his favorite subject because I think of the scriptures that are devoted to that subject. Matthew chapter 13, the parables of the kingdom. Some of them are included here. Matthew chapter 24, the unfolding in the future of the kingdom. The 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead was devoted to the preaching of the kingdom. Luke tells us that. In his follow-up book, Acts chapter 1, the former treatise which I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, gave commandments to his apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also... to whom he also appeared to them by many infallible proofs, being seen by them for 40 days and teaching the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That was his focus of his ministry for the 40 days that he arose. Now, there's a question a lot of folks have. 
What's the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? And there are books written to show you these vast differences between them. The fact of the matter is, I think, one is used by Matthew, the kingdom of uh, God, and the kingdom of heaven is used by the other gospel writers more often. I think they mean the same thing. There's just two different phases of it, perhaps. It would be better translated, some think, the kingship of heaven. The idea being this, the king, Jesus, has come. It's not something that you wait for in the future, in the sweet by and by, and playing a harp in a cloud someday. That's the kingdom of God. If you're a Christian, the king is in charge and reigning in your life. And you have hope being a part of the kingdom of God by the kingship of Christ of the future kingdom of heaven. But it's all tied together, and it begins now. It's not something just in the future, though that's the eschatological ramifications. You experience the kingship of Christ in your life now. And so the first few verses is sort of a synopsis, actually, of the entire chapter, chapter 8. The people that were with him, uh, what he was doing, and, uh, you know, who was part of his staff. There's a few things to notice about Jesus, and we see it here as he's teaching in the parables. Jesus was casual. The common people heard Jesus gladly. There was an absence of stiffness in the ministry of Jesus Christ, the absence of formality. Now, some people like formality, and I don't want to put that down. Some people like it rigid, and they like the robes and the collars and the choirs and the windows and whatever. But there was an absence of that kind of stuff in Jesus' ministry. He did preach in the synagogues, but most of his time was spent out in the open. And he sat most of the time when he taught. It was very casual. The common people heard him gladly. They loved his style. He was approachable. He was accessible. Accessible royalty, approachable deity. And they flocked to him. And then he taught with such simplicity to them. He didn't say, the name of my lecture this morning is eschatological ramifications of the kingdom of God and their pneumatological ramifications. He, he just said, let me tell you a story about a guy who was throwing seed around. <laughs> the most astute theologian down to the simplest person could understand that. A third of Jesus' teaching was in parables. The word is used 48 times in the New Testament. Parabole, to cast something aside or alongside something else. A parable is a story to teach a divine truth, an earthly story with divine truth in mind. And so the idea is this. I have a, an important truth to teach you, a theological premise. To do that, I'm going to cast something next to it it's a simple story that anybody's going to pick up on. When you understand this, you'll understand that. He was very right-brained in his approach. He used a lot of stories. Uh, preachers call stories or illustrations windows. When you construct a message, when you construct a sermon and you give oratory, you can fill it with just facts and study and this verse and that verse. But when you tell a story you see the crowd is sort of, you've got their attention again. They liven up. And in, if you're a speaker, that's called putting a window in the house that you build. And every house needs windows. 
If you put too many windows in a house, you have a glass house. You have no structure. But if you have a house without any windows at all, it's pretty dark, pretty drab. So construct it. Put in a few windows. Don't put in too many. Jesus taught regularly, didactively, but he then also taught in parables. Now he did it at a time in his ministry when the doors of Judaism were closing upon him. People, some, were out to find out how they could trap him. Let's hear what he says today, they thought. Let's hear, let's see if he can say something that we can trap him in. And so he said, hear a parable. Here's a principle with an earthly story attached to it to figure out for two reasons. A parable was given to reveal truth, first of all. If you're really interested in the truth and you're searching after God with all of your heart, this illustration, this story, will enliven the truth within you. If, however, you are only listening to think, let me see what I can find wrong with Jesus' teaching, then the parable was meant to conceal the truth from you. The parable had then a, a dual purpose. Reveal it to some, conceal it to others. Yes, Jesus kept the truth from people. People who were not interested in receiving it. They were deliberately kept from understanding the meaning. And Jesus bears this out. He said, A sower went out to sow a seed. He sowed some, fell by the wayside. It was trampled down. The birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock. Soon it sprang up. It withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns. And the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then the disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? Matthew says it was privately that they asked him this. You can understand why. They didn't want to look like dummies, but they were. <laughs> so he gave a parable. He says, To me, has ears to hear, let him hear. And you can see Peter going, What do you mean? <laughs> oh, no. Jesus, what do you mean? And he said, To you. It has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, These have no root who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. The ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, they go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. The ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. There's some elements to this parable. And by the way, this parable is like the key to understanding all of the parables, all of the kingdom parables. If you don't understand this parable, the rest are an enigma to you, the ones in Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom parables. The seed is the word of God, he says here. The seed is compared... Uh, or the word of God is compared to seed because a seed has life. It has the ability to give life. 
Just as the word of God has the ability to give life to those who receive it like a seed would be sown uh, into the ground. Uh, It doesn't say so here, but in Mark's gospel, Jesus said, The Son of Man is the one who sows the seed. So the seed is the word of God. Jesus Christ sows his seed, the field being the world, and it lands on soils. That's the third element of the parable that's important to understand, the soil representing the condition of the heart. You can have a calloused heart, and the guy throws out the seed, and it falls on the beaten path where the animals and the sower would walk. Because it is so compacted, it is impervious to penetration. And so it just lies as topsoil. The soil isn't ground up, able to receive it. So birds come along and just pick it away. That's a calloused heart. That's the person whose heart has so hardened that every time spiritual truth comes up, you know, they got their guard out. You mentioned Jesus, oh, you know, get away. They hear a truth and they start rationalizing it immediately. What's happening? In the spiritual realm, the devil is so lying to them, he's stealing the truth from their lives. So first of all, the calloused heart. Then in verse 12, he gives again the, um, verse 13, another of the keys. The one on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. This is the shallow heart. They get all excited, all emotional. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Isn't this awesome? But in Israel, there are places with rock just underneath the soil. You've got topsoil and you've got a rock shelf. I mean bedrock. So the roots start growing down, but because they can't get any deeper, when it gets really hot outside, there's no support, not enough to hold the moisture underneath the ground, and so the heat withers it away. This is the person who hears, he's really excited about it, but he has no root in himself. It's all top stuff. It's all superficial. There's no roots. Times of temptation, they bag it. They're out of there. The one that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures. I call this the crowded heart. They're in God's soil. They're planted, but there's a lot of other stuff that chokes maturity from them. I know a lot of people like this. They believe they have received Christ, but they just are stagnant for such a long time, either because of their religious system, their predispositions, they're not getting fed the Word of God, and they're choked then by all of the other things in their lives. Pleasures, pursuits, owning things. Not stable, no maturity. The ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word of God with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear the fruit with patience. The word patience could be translated endurance, perseverance. Hupamone is the word, to bear under the load, to stand your ground even when it's tough. The kind who says, Lord, through thick and thin, I gave my life to you, and it's yours. I'm not going to take it back. I'm not going to ask that I have the reins once again. You're the boss. You're in charge. It's not easy, but that's not the issue. The issue is my love for you, my dedication to you. Do do whatever you want. Bearing fruit with patience. Father, we are grateful that Jesus Christ 
loves us enough and is compassionate enough that he wants to reveal truth to us. And that's why you've given us the Bible, the Word of God, the self-disclosed revelation of God to man. Lord, we're responsible for what we hear and we pray that our our hearts we we pray that our hearts are free from distractions, from weeds. There's so much vying for our attention that comes in our eye gate and our ear gate throughout the day. And we have desires in our flesh that seem to gravitate toward what we see and what we hear and they can, they can choke. Lord, give us wisdom. Make us circumspect to live as wise and not as foolish people. Lord, I pray that we would continually build upon the solid foundation of Jesus Christ.